Go ahead and give it up for Pastor Jared. What's going on, everybody? Good to see you all. Good afternoon. All right, so today I'm going to put my professor hat on. As, uh, as oftentimes when Joe comes here for chapel, that's, that's what he does. I see him in more of a teaching mode uh, because that is uh, one of his many callings. And um, I'm teaching at another school right now, evangelism in the 21st century. And so I thought I'd share uh, some nuggies uh, that I'm teaching in that class. And I want to share it with uh, you all, communicate that. And I want to share what I think is a, a paradigm shift in the role of an evangelist, evangelism, and the local church. And, uh, you know, just evangelism in the year 2020 is different than it was in 2019, I think. Uh, we've had to make some adjustments, um, but I think that God is using it. We just saw yesterday, what's the brother's name? I can never say his last name, Sean, Sean Foyt, Foyt, Sean Foyt, uh, you know, and, and the let us worship there at the National Mall in D.C., 30,000 people there, and we've been seeing gatherings uh, like that in cities across the nation. Um, including here in Chicago, and some of you guys were involved in that, and that was uh, amazing, and God has been moving in, in fresh new ways, and folks need to get with it or get left in the dust, honestly. And I, but I've been saying this for a while now because I think we have this basically a tradition about what an evangelist is. And, and so does anybody here feel that calling, particularly of an evangelist? Mr. Good News Hughes does, I know that. And, and guys, I know you're with it. I know this cohort is with it. Uh, but I also would encourage you to share this with anybody uh, in other cohorts that may have that similar calling. Um, and uh, no matter where you are in the ministry, I'm sure you're going to pick up some goodies from this. So let's look at Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. As soon as I said Ephesians 4.11, what came to mind for you? The fivefold ministry. How many are taking that class? You know how I know you're taking that class? You interviewed me for that class, <laughs> or my wife. But this has always been taught. I taught uh, intro to fivefold here as well at SUM, and it's, it's standard because this school is built on that on that principle that God is raising up fivefold ministers, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher for building up the church and people who have that distinct calling and understanding. That's why you go to SUM. You don't come here to be uh, a, a marketing major. You don't come here to be um, to to be a, to get your MBA and be in business. You you come here for the fivefold ministry uh, to give your your life your livelihood to vocational ministry in one of these areas. So let's read this passage, Ephesians four eleven. So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip His people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. 
Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So that is the word of God. This is the seminal passage for the fivefold ministry. Uh, but one of the things you'll notice here is Paul seems to mention each of these ministries in passing. He doesn't stop on each one to give a job description, which would be pretty helpful, especially considering that as we focus on evangelist, this is one of three times the word evangelist appears in the entire New Testament. And so it would, it would be helpful. So what do you mean by evangelist? What do you mean by apostle and, and prophet? We see uh, apostles throughout the, the Bible. We see prophets throughout the Bible. So what is, what is meant by that? We're not going to focus on those. But it is interesting. Uh, when you think about it, he doesn't give the job description. And so it's left for us to let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is a principle of hermeneutics that clearer scriptures can interpret more obscure scriptures. So my understanding of what an evangelist is in Ephesians 4 should come from the Bible, okay? Other parts of the Bible. If Ephesians 4 is just, it's, it's just like a given. Paul is assuming that his audience knows what an evangelist is and what an evangelist does, uh, but if we were not the original church receiving that letter, we may not be in the know, However, you can be clued in uh, by how that word is used in the Bible and people who functioned in that way. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But the fact is, Paul does give a job description here. And it's not just the job description of an evangelist, but it is for the apostle, the prophet, and the pastor and teacher as well. And that is summarized in verse 12. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, as it reads on through uh, verse 16, you get this vision of the church being built up to be everything that God has intended it to be, the beautiful, spotless bride, the warrior bride that Jesus has um, died for, that Jesus laid down his life for, right? Um, because it it's, it's talks about not just us being a little bit better than what we used to be, but it says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So it, so it is to bring the church to a sense of completeness. Amen? And so I believe that this will be fulfilled throughout uh, history leading up to the return of Jesus. So when he comes, he will have a church that is mature and complete as each part, as, as we each uh, build ourselves up in love, each part doing its work, as it says in verse 16. So, so with that being said, the role of the evangelist, as well as the entire fivefold ministry, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So any evangelist um, that considers themselves an evangelist that, that believes they are called and that they are a man of God or a woman of God, their number one job description is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And for the evangelist, it would be evangelism, okay? 
an evangelist equips the saints for the work of evangelism. Does that make sense? And you can make application with each, with each of the fivefold ministries. But the reason I think this is important and it's a paradigm shift is because we often think of the evangelist as a traveling preacher who goes from church to church, event to event, conference to conference, crusade to crusade. And, you know, the old saying goes that they blow in, they blow up, and they blow out. They're here for a Sunday. They're here for a weekend. Maybe, they're, maybe it's a week of revival, Monday through Friday night. And they're, but, but they're, you know, as soon as they're here, they're, they're gone to the next place. And you find that there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But there may be very little opportunities, if any, to actually equip the saints in those places where you're going. I don't know about you, but when I've heard these great guest speakers, even some at Mardi Gras, talk about their exploits, how they raised the dead, how they did all these miracles, I didn't feel very edified, honestly. I felt like, that's an awesome man of God. But me, not so much. But he's awesome. And so... And so they come, and, and, and you see some of these folks, they are literally, uh, you know, on the way to the airport, like, as soon as they leave. They don't even, like, stop to look at anybody after they get off that stage. Like, how can you build somebody up? I mean, this is called discipleship, by the way. Um, how can you disciple somebody from a stage? You can't. And so let me just kind of present um, three ways that ministry may be viewed, okay? There is local there's translocal and there's itinerant. Okay? Local ministry is the local church. Okay? So, one of the ways that I'm going to interpret Ephesians 4 is through 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, we're not going to turn there, but if you look at the first 10 verses, Paul gives Timothy uh, what are the standards for leadership in the church. What does it take to become an elder or a deacon in a local church? And it's all about character. It doesn't talk about you got to be a good preacher. It does say able to teach. That's one thing it does say. But it doesn't say you have to be a good singer. It doesn't say you have to, you know, be a big tither or all these things. But it has everything to do with your character. And you must be above reproach, blameless. You must manage yourself well, be self-controlled. You must manage your household well. You must have a good reputation with outsiders, above reproach, meaning nobody can actually blame you of anything and, and it be a true accusation, right? That your character, you have a character of integrity um, and honesty in all your dealings. That is what it takes to be a leader, an elder, or a deacon in a local church, and so every apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, they must first be ordained in their local church. They may be anointed, but they must also be appointed. The anointing comes from God. It is the gift of God, whether it's spiritual gifts, like some folks have the gift of prophecy more than others, or gifts of administration or gifts of hospitality that are mentioned elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. These are gifts given by the Spirit as He determines. That's up to Him. And so He gifts certain people to have certain uh, 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 dispositions of leadership, okay? And so that is the anointing. It comes from God. Now, many are called, but few are chosen, 
And so there are many people who are anointed who are called to be in leadership in these different capacities, but they don't live up to it. And so what must, be met, what, what must the anointing be met with? The appointing. It is recognition uh, of the church, okay? The, so the anointing comes from God. The appointing also comes from God, but through the church, okay? Recognition of your gifts, recognition of your calling. And so every evangelist should first and foremost be in good standing with their local church. Amen? Um, and be a leader, and be accountable and be shown in that process to be above reproach. Amen? Okay, so that is local. And so that would imply that, you know, you know, pretty much day in, day out, week in, week out, your ministry is to the same group of people. That ensures that you are actually equipping the saints, right? Again, you can't make disciples from a stage. You can't make disciples if you only see them once a year. You see them once ever at a conference or something like that, but you can make disciples with the people you work with day in, day out, training them in evangelism, leading them up in that endeavor, okay? So there's local, then there is translocal, and I'm not talking about that kind of trans. We know what gender we are in 2020, amen? I'm talking about someone who is rooted in their local church, yet they are blessed and enabled to travel and minister in other places. And that's why I, I don't want to uh, entirely uh, dismiss the, that, you know, you can go and preach a revival, preach a crusade, go to an event, go to a... That's, that's fine. But the caveat is you are grounded in your local church. You are accountable. You are not skipping steps, okay, of doing the work day in and day out with, the, with that group of people you're equipping and then not, and not just scattering your seed everywhere else and becoming a traveling showman. Now, the last category, so there's local, translocal, and then there's itinerant. And itinerant is what a lot of, not only evangelists, but a lot of people, prophets, um, teachers, apologists, they're just basically flying by the seat of their pants. They, and nowadays you can have an internet ministry, so there's that, and you could be big on the internet um, through, you know, your YouTube channel or your blog or whatever, um, but not be in a local church. And I've met folks, not just evangelists, uh, but I can think of one particular apologist who's brilliant at, um, you know, uh, defending the faith against Muslims and all sorts of world religions, but totally, totally lacks character. And this person has never ever been rooted in a local church, and it shows, okay? And you can see that with prophets and, and the scandals they fall into because they're not accountable. Um, certain people come to mind for me, and, and then evangelists as well. And here's three dangers, okay, of having a strictly itinerant ministry. Number one is a lack of a pastor's heart, okay? If you blow in, blow up, and blow out from place to place, you will have a, just a very shallow uh, understanding of the people you're actually talking to, a uh, very shallow understanding of where they're coming from, what their needs are, and what God is doing in that church. And so I've seen it in places where, in, in a, oh, another example of a lot of itinerant ministry would be like worship leaders as well. 
and, and you could just be a concert performer, you know, at that point. But we'll get to that in just a moment. One of the dangers is that lack of a pastoral heart. And so I'm not going to name the person because I deeply respect them and, and I'm not worthy to untie their sandals. But there's a missionary um, that's, that's been uh, a long time in Mexico and has seen many miracles and has planted many churches and has endured many hardships over the years. A person of great faith, also just tough as nails. And you have to be tough in that line of work because they have, again, suffered many hardships, dealing with the cartels, um, suffering all kinds of loss. And But a pastor friend of ours would have this person there every year. They'd come and travel, and this missionary would just rebuke the people. He would just lay into these complacent, lazy, you know, Americans, you know, year after year after year. And, and then the pastor had to say, I'm not going to invite you back. If you're just going to come in for one day, you know, give my people a tongue lashing and then take their money in, a, in the form of an offering <laughs> and go on to the next place. Like, you don't know these people. You don't know their heart. You don't know how complacent they are or they aren't. You're just making these assumptions. You're projecting your ideas and your experience onto them, right? And so you can see that and then just, just com again, completely miss the point, miss the needs of, of what is going on in that church. The second thing is uh, what I've been alluding to all along, and that is a lack of accountability. Who's asking you the tough questions if you're living holy? One of the things I love about Pastor Joe is he'll ask me, when's the last time you had sex with yourself? Come on. It gets quiet when I teach like that. And when's the last time somebody asked you when's the last time you had sex with yourself? Right? Now, nowadays, he's a little more, little more measured. He'll just ask me, are you staying out of trouble? Are you behaving? But, but he would keep it that real. And whoever asked that? I mean, especially when you get to a certain point where people probably just assume that you're living holy, and, but that's the most dangerous place to be, is people assume that you're living holy, or they're afraid because of this, this persona that you exude, and so they're not going to ask you those questions, or they just don't care, like, come on and get these people worked up for me, please, and then be on your way. And there can be a total lack of accountability. The last thing is a spirit of professionalism, Okay. I'll say it, I said it before, I'll say it again. You cannot disciple people from a stage. And so if your ministry is entirely from a stage, it can just be a show, okay? Many people become good at this, whether it is prophetic, whether it is, uh, again, in the teaching arena or evangelist or worship leader, you know how to move a crowd. You know how to elicit the response that you want to get from people, to where it, it can become so carnal that you'll have the prophet who has figured out little tactics how to basically give broad prophecies that would are going to apply to someone in the room, but it's gonna it's gonna sound broad but specific enough that somebody's gonna say, "Oh, he's talking exactly about me." Does anyone have a father? <laughs> right? You have a father, don't you? You know, like or something like that, but. And they'll even have people like in the audience who are like 
um, there as plants and things. They, they get so carnal as to elicit these responses from folks. And you could get the same thing from an evangelist, maybe not to that extent where it's downright deceptive, but it is manipulative, where you can get somebody to accept Jesus almost under a false pretense because what you did was a, basically a sales pitch and you got the emotions worked up and you can get somebody, as they do in certain denominations, to sign a decision card or to, to walk down an aisle or to do something to say, I had 500 decisions for Jesus at my last, um, at my last uh, event, right? So they can say these, so they can put, you know, put up these numbers here. And when they do that, they're talking evangelistically. See what I did there? Yes. All right. So, so those are some of the dangers there. So if you want to travel, that happy middle is to be translocal. Yes, you, there are opportunities to minister in other places. And, and I encourage you guys to take those opportunities, walk through those doors. Um, well, we as a church bless you, especially those of you who are now deacons. Uh, to, to walk through those doors of opportunity as you are invited to, to speak and minister in other places. But that is because you have uh, been proven as leaders here. You've proven your salt here that you equip the saints and are above reproach. So those are some um, categories there. Local, translocal, itinerant. The whole idea is that the, the old paradigm, the old tradition has been the itinerant preacher, the guy who's just in one place to the next week after week. But we should not separate any ministry from the local church. Amen? When Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, he's talking about the local church, not the Roman Catholic church, not even necessarily the universal church, although we do honor the universal church, but... It is the local church. It is a group of people in a local setting under a presbytery that is a group of elders and deacons, and then they are under the authority of Scripture, amen, and they govern according to the Bible. So getting back to that, and then as a result of having evangelists in the church, Pastor Joe has said this for the longest time, we should have the fivefold in our church, all of it. In our leadership, we should have the fivefold so that it doesn't have to be necessarily outsourced. It can be great to have people come in from other places to speak from time to time, as we've had uh, this summer with you know Jesus Matters and all of that, and had uh, you know Sister Bevelin and others uh, come, and it was a great encouragement. Uh, but we should be able to have that so that we're not dependent on a, a, a speaker from outside. Amen? And so that's why we're equipping you. That's why we have uh, a cohort, an SUM cohort in this church, because we believe in that. And so what does it look like then to have an evangelist at a church? It looks like a culture of evangelism, an evangelistic heart among the people. And so... Here's something that is going to sound very controversial and, and, and very insightful at the same time. But leaders lead. Amen? Leaders lead. And, and what I mean there is that if your church is not evangelizing, it has to, everything to do with the leadership. Okay? Any church, any church 
that, that you know, you show me, I think this rule is going to apply, that they resemble their pastor. They resemble their people. The things that they emphasize in terms of doctrine, um, their, their values, their culture, it's all going to look like the, the, either the, you know, the main pastor or the, you know, the, 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 the staff or whomever, but they set what is the ethos of that church. And so when you have nobody in leadership with an evangelistic heart, then it follows that the rest of the congregation is not going to have that. They're the, 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 again, the teacher is going to be like, the, rather the student is going to be like the teacher. That's what Jesus said. The servant is going to look like the master. And so you're going to follow the example of your pastor. Will you follow your pastor into the harvest fields or not? We know in this church that our, uh, our, our apostolic elder, Joe, and one of the hats he, he wears is that of an evangelist, and we're going out tonight, by the way, and uh, to, to Chicago and Wabash to, to witness. We were out uh, Saturday at Planned Parenthood. Your senior pastor, the big guy, the big cheese, who comes on stage on Sunday and wows us with his preaching uh, abilities, he's actually out there doing the thing on the streets. And so that, go, that trickles down to you, him leading by example to where you may not be on a corner with us on a Saturday morning uh, next to Planned Parenthood, but you guys, and I know this, and so many others do have this heart that you're always w- sharing your faith with people, and then you're involved in other things throughout the week. And so uh, leaders lead. The church will resemble its uh, pastor. And so the evangelist, assuming you have an evangelist, they're, they're facilitating that, right? They're the ones making that happen. And so many times I talk to folks, some folks who are SUM students uh, even, and, and they say, I, I, wanna, I love what you guys do there, and I want to do it in my church. And sadly, they have next to no support from their leaders to do the thing. Nobody with an evangelistic heart, and this is where you see maybe it's, maybe it's a bigger picture that they do not understand the fivefold ministry, and they do not understand what an evangelist is and does. Um, because if they did, then they would have some support, then there would already be something in place. But as it is, it's like pulling teeth, not to get the congregation. I used to think the problem was with the congregation, you know, some pastors like, you know, and, and I, I don't have a ton of experience in this arena, but, you know, some, some people in the wider church world will tell you about these churches that are very set in their ways. They got these old timers. They got generations of families and all these things. And uh, we can't change things on them. It's going to be so difficult. But I find that really where it's pulling teeth is with the leaders. It's not the congregation. Now, interestingly, the leader will blame the congregation, but they're a reflection of their leadership. So it's often, it's often the leader, the pastor, the staff, the elder, that's the one who's resistant to change, resistant to learning something from someone like TJ, resistant to doing something new, resistant to getting out of their comfort zone, resistant to... Doing what always worked for them to basically get them by, I have a comfortable job where I 
work one day a week, you know, sort of thing. And I don't want to say that, uh, you know, paint with too broad a brush. There are some good pastors who don't evangelize, but they definitely do a lot of stuff for Jesus. Uh, however, you will see that next to no support. Oh, yeah, you want to witness? Go, go ahead. Go ahead and witness. They're not going to teach it. Okay? They're not going to, uh, and, and they're not going to ex expect it from you, and they're not going to lead you in it. Okay? And that's three components, by the way. Equipping the saints. Teaching and expecting and leading. Teaching. Great example yesterday. The, uh, the harvest is plentiful. Joe's sermon was a wonderful, uh, not only inspiring, but practical message on how to share your faith and, and then how to understand that you can and should uh, have a part in witnessing publicly for Jesus. Wonderful message. You rarely hear exhortations like that from the pulpit. Okay, That's part of teaching. So, so, but that has to be done. Messages like that need to be preached, and, and, but again, you, you don't see that a ton. If it is, it's often very vague, like there's kind of the notion of friendship evangelism kind of coming across, and, and you like, you know, being a light to people around you, but never it's put forth as, hey, the Great Commission applies to you, not just to me. You go out and make disciples. You preach the gospel to all creation. Rarely do you see that kind of teaching put forth, and that would lead to the next thing, the actual expectation. Okay, So where there's an, a sense of accountability now to it. Like we're doing, we're doing X, Y, and Z. We're going somewhere, and we actually expect people to join us. Okay, Now you cannot have that unless you're leading, unless you're creating opportunities for the church to evangelize. Now think about this. If, a, if an individual, a Christian, doesn't pray, they don't have a good prayer life, you would see that as a problem, right? Something is wrong. They're, they're disobedient. Something is not what the, how it's supposed to be because the Bible says to pray, they're not praying. And then imagine a church that doesn't pray. They don't gather for prayer. You would say something is wrong with that church. Okay, or a Christian that uh, that doesn't read their Bible, and then imagine a church that doesn't read the Bible, right? A again, what would go for an individual Christian would be multiplied to the church as far as accountability and expectation, because these are commandments. This is Christianity 101: pray and read your Bible. Now, the reason I bring those up is because a lot of churches are good at that. They, they pray, they read their Bible, they worship, they, they have things in their weekly schedule and on their calendar uh, that make that possible. But rarely do any have anything uh, for evangelism, right? So you have your worship time, you have your prayer time, you have your Bible study time, but where's your evangelism time? Evangelism is just as much of a command for every Christian and it's just as much of a spiritual discipline as is worship, reading the Bible, praying. So what goes for the individual believer uh, as far as accountability and expectation, again, is multiplied to the church. If a church doesn't pray, they're in trouble. If a church doesn't read their Bible, they're in trouble. The same will go for a church that doesn't evangelize. 
they're not doing something that they are supposed to be doing. And so they teach, and then they ex expect, and then they lead. And that's where my controversial statement came out. I know I stepped on a lot of toes when I said leaders lead, but that's it. They are actually out there being leading by example. And, not, and this is not in the way that, like, where the guy comes and he talks about how he raised the dead in Malawi or something like that, or he talked to some gay atheist on the airplane and the, the person broke down in tears or whatever, and, and you feel like, that guy's awesome. Because that's, that's an example, but it's, it's often an example that you don't feel uh, you can follow, right? Like, yeah, that's something awesome that you did, but I don't know, you know, what can little old me, what can the average layperson be expected to do, you know, in your congregation? Somebody doesn't have all the training. Somebody doesn't have all those gifts and all that experience. What can, this, what can you do that this person can get up and do? And so you have to then lead by example in ways that the congregation can follow. And so that is opening your mouth and talking to strangers about Jesus. Just about anybody can do that. Amen? And so teach and then um, expect and then, and then lead. So that's what equipping the saints looks like. Now, I don't know how much time I'm going to have um, to get into the rest of this. But talking about the job description of an evangelist, we covered the first thing, which is major. Equip the saints for the work of evangelism. That's the first thing. That's huge. It cannot be understated. In fact, to do anything beyond uh, that and to get into other areas is to be skipping those steps to not be grounded in your local church. Uh, but again, I mentioned there's, this is one of three places that the word evangelist is even found. Okay, so I'm going to look at some of these uh, with you. So we have Ephesians 4.11, where the evangelist is mentioned, and then we have 2 Timothy. Let's look at that, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And if you'll recall yesterday's sermon, this was brought up as well, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. It says this, But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Okay, so these, this was a, an exhortation given from Paul to Timothy, and it is to do the work of an evangelist. Now, this again, this is the big cheese. This is Timothy. This is the preacher, uh, the pastor of this church in Ephesus. Um, and yet he, too, is expected, do the work of an evangelist. And I loved Joe's illustration of this. I'll repeat it, especially for those watching online. Um, how many are here are a cook by trade? You went to culinary school. You work in a restaurant. You work in catering. Okay, nobody, right? But how many of you ever cook for yourselves? Maybe, maybe successful, maybe not so successful, right? So not everyone here cooks and is trained in it and, and does it for a living as their livelihood, but it's still something that you do in your daily life. It's the, same, it's the same here. In fact, it's the same with all the fivefold ministry, that though there may not be people who are, um, who are not called to leadership in that way, 
there's still some expectation. Win souls, make disciples, live holy. Amen. It's not like there's only a select few people that ever do ministry. And that would be another paradigm shift, right? How many have ever heard of the Pareto Principle? The Pareto Principle is um, the observation that in, in business, you'll find that 20% of people do 80% of the work. And that's just how it always shakes out. Obviously, you want 100% of the people, but that's what ends up happening as far as productivity goes, which would imply that 80% of people, they may be present, they may be collecting paychecks, but they're not super productive. And, 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 tw- and the 20% that are, are picking up the slack for everybody else. Now, I heard a pastor uh, say that applies to the church, uh, but he didn't say it with a tear in his eye. He didn't say it as a lament. He, he, was, he seemed kind of proud to, to state that that was the case in that church. Um, that, yeah, 20% of people do 80% of the work. And how would that look in a church? Well, you'd have a group of leaders, uh, you know, people who are paid, staff, elders, some other people who maybe are just, they're just on fire. No thanks to their pastor, but they're on fire, so they like to do stuff for Jesus without even being asked. And then everybody else, the 80%, they're just attendees, they're spectators, they're fans who cheer on the 20% who do the actual work of ministry. Now, I agree with the 20 to 80 ratio because I don't see the vast majority of people in the church actually being called to these things. I see many Christians who will be lay people and who will, you know, have their vocation in other areas and they do it all for the glory of God and they can be influential and should be and they're needed in those places. Amen? So, and then... If it was all preachers, we'd be broke. So someone's got to pay the big tithes. Right? So I do believe in that. And I do believe it's a smaller number of the church that is actually called to this level of leadership. I do. But if there's a 20-80 principle, it's that 20% equips the 80% for the work of ministry. So that they're not, you know... uh, Again, just kind of sitting on the sidelines because in so many churches, it is a glass ceiling of what you can actually do for Jesus because they're not making opportunities. If they're not hitting the streets and actually inviting you to hit the streets with them, when do you actually have opportunity to win souls that the church is facilitating? It's almost like if you're on fire, radical, you're winning souls, it's despite your church because you're just going out on your own. You're getting together with your friends because your church ain't doing it, right? So... There's that glass ceiling. You can, you can uh, volunteer in the kids' ministry. You can maybe sing on the stage. You can greet people. You can be an usher and park cars. You could hold a sign that says, you're fabulous on a Sunday. Welcome home. Hope you had a good night at the club. I'd like to see that sign at a church. You know, you can hold those signs, but they're, again, there's, there's just a glass ceiling because they really don't want you to do that stuff. They're actually fine with you middling in this area, not living up to your full, full potential as a Christian and doing all the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. 
Okay, so so that's that's they're actually fine with that because it does take hard work to actually equip the saints. This is another again. This term is synonymous with discipleship. It's dis, it's a discipleship issue. They don't want to get into your life and work through the, work through your issues to actually get you to that point. They're fine with this deal that you basically have with them. So, um, don't know how I got there. Oh, yes, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. So, among other things, he evangelizes. Even though he's a pastor, oh, that's not my calling. You know, we could all, I'll make the excuse. So many people, if there's only a handful of people, because correct me if I'm wrong, TJ, you're the only one who raised your hand when I asked. If, if you had the gift or the calling of an evangelist, does that mean the rest of you are exempt? Like you see a lost person and, and, and you feel, oh, that's not my job. Oh, let me call TJ. Hey, TJ, there's a lost person on Cicero in, um, in Irving Park. Can you, can you go get them, you know? Like, no, you can, you, you're saved. The Great Commission is for you. You talk to them. Amen? And we're seeing wonderful fruit with our friends down south, by the way. I'm so encouraged. Because not only, because they've been witnessing in college campuses. They've been out hitting the streets. They're going out late night. They uh, are doing the thing. And they, they're, they're building our church down there. They're building an MPI. And they had five people there for their, their service. And then those five people went out with them later in the night to preach. Right? Because they, they're, they're, being, they're leading by example. They're doing what I'm talking about. So Timothy, too, is to do the work of an evangelist. Okay, let's look at another passage, Acts 21, verse 8. And who wants to take a guess as we turn there? Who is the one person in the Bible who is actually called an evangelist? No. Philip, you, you got it. You got it. It's there. It's there on the screen. Did you look at it? Okay, good. I believe you. Okay. There's one person in the Bible who's called an evangelist. His name is Philip. Acts 21, verse 8. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So we have now uh, uh, the, the beginning of a case study, right, of what an evangelist is and does because we have someone in the Bible who is called the evangelist. Um, so we, we know from Ephesians 4 that an evangelist equips the saints for the work of ministry, but now we can get more specificity to that by looking at Philip. The first thing it says that, that is that he's one of the seven. You see that? Now, who, what does that mean, he's one of the seven? One of the seven deacons. Very good. So in Acts chapter 6, and we're low on time, so I'm going to go through this a little quickly. But the long story short is that there are seven deacons who are appointed um, to, to wait tables in the church. So that is what a deacon does. Um, they are leaders. They are anointed. They are to be honored. Um, but a lot of it is menial stuff that needs to get done in the church. And they are stewards of, of that kind of work. Uh, at least that was the case here. However, when we look at Acts chapter 6, and I'm just going to skim through it. I want you to see the qualifications of a deacon here. 
it says here, um, it says in verse 3, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay? So a deacon must be that. They must be full of the Holy Ghost. Shabbat-abadoo. Right? And they must, they must display wisdom that is heavenly. And then, um, and then it goes on in verse 5, and it describes uh, Stephen. Let's just read this. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who laid who prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, so, so Philip here is one of the seven along with Stephen. We know it happened with Stephen. And he was um, murdered after his first sermon. But these deacons weren't just deacon around. Amen? You go to some churches where it's deacon possessed. And, and, the, and you know, where it's just kind of become this bureaucratic position that you hold or you got there because you know your dad was a deacon or you got there because you you give the biggest donations you helped you know give a generous donation to to the new building or what have you and that makes you a deacon no the, the qualifications were to be full of the spirit and wisdom right and then and then you see the pattern here where it's not just the apostles. That's one of the things about Acts that, that, you'll, that you'll notice as a pattern is that it, it pivots from following Peter and John, who are sort of the main figures, mostly Peter, because John's words aren't, aren't recorded, but Peter's are. And, but but they're, nevertheless, they're always mentioned together, Peter and John as, as the main guys. But it's intentional here to see that now not only are Peter and John preaching and full of the Holy Spirit, but ordinary folks like Stephen and Philip are. And so we know what becomes of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, but then we pick up in Acts chapter 8, and we learn about what Philip did there. Now, we're very short on time, but you could go ahead and turn to Acts 8, and we can see what Philip does in uh, verse 4, and, and get clued into why he might be called an evangelist. Oh, wow. All right. Excellent. Okay, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So this is a, a kind of a snapshot of, of a revival uh, taking place in Samaria. And who is, who is the vessel? Who is the man with faith and power for the hour? Again, not one of the main guys, not one of the twelve, but Philip who we know next to nothing about right now, an ordinary fellow. And, and that's who God chose to use. And as we look at, again, just at the larger narrative of Acts, because Acts 1.8 is, is sort of an outline for the whole book. I don't know if you knew that. Acts 1.8, it's an interpretive key. Why? Because the, the, the uh, story is about the gospel 
and, and bearing witness to Jesus, because what does it say? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so up until this point, the gospel had been preached in Jerusalem because that's where they were at Pentecost, and that's where they began to gather. And then it spread out sort of naturally to the larger region of Judea, but it's still among the Jews. Now the gospel is being preached in Samaria. So this is the next step of, of Jesus' prophecy. And we know that the Samaritans were not necessarily welcome among Jews. They were not seen as legitimate. Even though they thought themselves legitimate, they could say, well, you know, we have our own ancestry, uh, but they were considered half-breed. They were folks that basically were dispersed, uh, Jews that were dispersed in the Babylonian exile, but then they intermarried with pagans, okay? And so they were considered outsiders uh, to the Jewish faith. And now who is being used to reach them? It is Philip. And again, what's the snapshot here? The, the Messiah is proclaimed, and then what happens? Um, the signs he performed, verse 6. When the crowd heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, so he, he proclaims the Messiah, and signs are performed, including uh, impure spirits coming out of folks, and people who are paralyzed or lame becoming healed. And so that is what Jesus also said would happen. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. So there is power to accompany Philip's witness of Jesus Christ. Um, now, we have more to say about that. I'm going to skip to verse 14. Now, verses 9 through 13 is about a man named Simon, a sorcerer, who wants to buy the Holy Spirit. Um, we just don't have time. It's not totally germane to, to this topic. But let's skip to verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Um, and another thing that I, I failed to, to mention, because it was part of this other passage, is that as people were uh, coming to faith, Philip would then baptize them. Okay, So just note here, because this is the only man in the Bible called an evangelist. And we, we only have the role of an evangelist from Scripture. So what is he doing? He's preaching the gospel. Signs are following it, people are coming to faith, and then they're being baptized, okay? And then he calls Peter and John to pray for them, to uh, these new converts, to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, this is sort of the translocal thing. Um, he would eventually do a lot of traveling, as we'll see, but he was grounded. He was under their leadership he was from that Jerusalem church. He was ordained in that church, right? And, but he went out, and then with the blessing, and that's what you'll see with a lot of like legit fivefold ministry types is that you're, you're going to see that there's always that covering, right? And so Peter and John are there 
to, to, to see what's going on. And they see this as of God, and they're laying hands on folks to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, as we read on, let's look at verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. We'll pause here. Just a few things to note about this Ethiopian eunuch. He is what you might call a God-fearer. He is somebody who honors the Jewish faith. Um, he has not subscribed to perhaps the paganism of, of his Ethiopian culture, uh, but he honors and, and recognizes there's one God. He honors the moral code of, of, the, of the Jewish people, but he's not all in himself. Nevertheless, it says he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship and that he had a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Do you know how much that scroll would have cost? That's a lot of money. These are all handwritten, very hard to, to get a hold of, let alone be able to afford. And he had, he had taken this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So that, that would say that he, he's, he's a seeker, Right? To use our modern terminology, he's somebody who is seeking Jesus. He just doesn't know it yet. And the Spirit told Philip in verse 29, go to that chariot and stay near it. And so one of the things you'll note about an evangelist and what perhaps separates someone who has that fivefold gifting um, from everyone else in the congregation, people, yeah, yeah, we were commanded to evangelize, um, and, and that should be a part of our lives. But what would set them apart from the, the leadership uh, evangelist? Well, sometimes you could tell it by that person's temperament, their personalities, how God wired them. And you'll see with an evangelist, they're always talking about Jesus wherever they go. They don't just talk about Jesus when the light's on and when it's showtime or when it's you know time to hit the streets or whatever. They're just always um, opening their mouth. And, and not just because of a personality, but notice who told him to, to go to the chariot. The Spirit told him. They have this openness to the leading of the Holy Spirit to preach to folks wherever they go, to, to understand. And, and, that's, and that's such a sensitive thing that we must all develop, by the way. Because think about this. I remember early in my uh, Christian walk, you know, knowing just virtually everyone around me was lost. I used to take the train to work, and I would think like, man, if I'm doing the right thing by these people, I should just stand here all day and preach, because everybody's lost. Now, we know that we can't preach to everybody. We can't just devote every moment of every day preaching to everybody because we can't even begin to get it all done. And um, there, are, there are many other things that God would call us to that that would take us away from, like our families, for example. But 
Nevertheless, we may not be able to preach to everybody, but we could preach to somebody. The question is, how do we determine who is that somebody? For example, there's going to be 10 homeless people you'll, you'll see on your way to work all begging for change. But you, you can't you know, stop and give them all attention, but you may feel led by the Spirit to give one of them some time and to minister to them. Does that make sense? And so that is something that we must all be sensitive to. Now, it goes on and talks about how this conversation ends up going, where the, the eunuch is reading um, Isaiah 53, just so happened to be reading this prophecy about the suffering servant, Jesus, being crushed for our sins, and, and he, he doesn't know what it's about. He says in verse 34, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Whoa, I'm glad you asked. What a wonderful opportunity, right? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Another thing to note here, because again, we're in professor mode, is that um, their Old Testament was the Bible. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, written at this time or any of the New Testament, I don't think at this point, particularly here, any of the New Testament books were written. Paul wasn't even saved yet. So uh, that, that would be a while. So what, what were they using to proclaim the gospel? The Old Testament scriptures, which tells us that the Old Testament scriptures preach the gospel and tells us that the Old Testament scriptures proclaim Jesus in a clear enough way that that this unit could understand and many others. So, looking at verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look here, what can stand in my way of being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So, you see more of that translocal ministry. I won't call it itinerant because we've kind of ruled that out. Um, but you do see that he doesn't stay there. He does kind of blow in, blow up, and blow out. Literally, the Spirit takes him away. <laughs> He doesn't see him again. He doesn't, you know, make sure he finds a good home church or anything like that. But as, as the Spirit carries him away, he traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So let me sum this up for you. A biblical example of an evangelist uh, as we have in Philip. Number one, he preached the gospel with signs following. Healing, miracles, etc. Number two, wins many converts and baptizes them. Okay. Number three, entrusts follow-up work to the apostles. So Peter and John are a part of the, the, the process. He's not doing this independently of his leadership and the church from which he came. Uh, number four, goes to the next place by the Lord's leading. It is the Lord who leads him. And that is something for evangelists to consider as well, that you're not just going where uh, the, the best paycheck is, or you're not going to the place like uh, the church with the warmest weather during the winter or something like that, um, or, or just any personal preference. That's not what guides it. It is the Lord's leading. 
but as I've said, especially at this early stage of ministry, I encourage you guys walk through, uh, you know, any open doors, um, good open doors of ministry that that come your way. Um, because that experience is just so wonderful. Number five, it says, along the way, preach the gospel with the Lord's leading. Okay, so wherever you go, you're an evangelist, you don't turn it off. Amen? You're a soul winner, you don't turn it off. And I think that goes for any of us. You don't, you don't turn Christianity off when you go to church, uh, when you leave church, rather. You are always a disciple of the Lord, um, and so there's, there's never a time where you're, where you're not that, especially if you're an evangelist. Okay, number six, baptizes new converts. I think we covered that when necessary, and then preaches the gospel from town to town. So you do see that pattern then where they are, where they are evangelizing in many places. And as I've, as I've pointed out um, in the 21st century, especially in the year 2020, you are seeing a new shift in how evangelism is being done. And there are still folks in the church who are afraid to go outside. One thing I've noticed is that the, the, the command to, to be out in public and, and not only the command, but the usefulness and the relevance of that has not gone away, right? Uh, Joe made a great point that social media has not eliminated the need in the, in the, in the ought because God said so to go out and publicly witness. And frankly, nothing has taken away even the, the potency of that. Many people in the church are very pragmatic. And they think that because, or they think that if evangelizing publicly doesn't put butts in seats and, and, and grow your congregation in a formulaic way, right, then, then well, I have better ways. I can attract crowds in different ways. I could give away stuff. I could I could give these. I could preach a certain kind of message. I could have a play. I could have a, an ex baseball player who you know who everybody knows, like Daryl Strawberry or somebody like that, come give their testimony. Uh, there are better ways to get butts and seats than what you're doing, right? And so they're again very pragmatic, but and and then to a fault because they they're disregarding the obeying the command to publicly evangelize. But I want to contend that those churches, are as, as much as they think they're being pragmatic and that they're going to win more people that way, they're going to become irrelevant and left in the dust. Amen? Especially in this year where so many people are enslaved to, to fear. Fear of human contact and fresh air. Goodness gracious. And then we don't lead the way with faith and and hope, and we don't gather and, and meet together. God have mercy on us. And you'll see sometimes when we put out pictures or, or live streams of our witnessing, you, you sometimes have the occasional mask Nazi on there. I saw that on Sean Foyt's thing. Where are your masks? Where are your masks? Like, guys, there are, there are multitudes of lost souls out there, okay? We cannot social distance from them. You can't win them from a stage, and you can't win them from a keyboard, okay? You have to go out and meet the people, amen? 
got to do it. And so that's, that's a, a shift there. Uh, not, not too much different because we've seen that the Billy Grahams and the Luis Palau's of the world, like we've, we've often recognized that as evangelistic ministry. So that's really not changed. But it is amazing that, that as much as you would think that this global pandemic has jeopardized that and nullified that, no, it's actually more needed than ever and it's more potent than ever. And it's, I would say, seeing a resurgence because where Billy Graham could fill up stadiums with unbelievers, a lot of the stuff with evangelists in more recent years attracts mostly Christians. You're not, if you see an arena filled up, it's usually with an evangelist speaker, it's usually Christians, it's usually churches in the area that are filling those seats. It's not unbelievers. Um, and so, again, this, this is getting refreshed, and, and I, I long for the day that we will see not only the National Mall, but Soldier, Soldier Field and, and, and Wrigley and all these places filled with sinners who are ready to hear the gospel. So having looked at the biblical example of an evangelist in Philip, I'll go quickly over what a modern example of an evangelist. If you're translocal, grounded in a local church, yet spreading your gifts uh, to other churches, local bodies, in, in other places. Um, I would say this. If you really want to equip the saints, if you're interested in traveling, um, not to go just once a year to a church or go once every blue moon, but to really do follow-up work, right? Like what we were doing in Elgin. We were there every Friday throughout the summer because it takes consistency and regularity to actually teach and train people and to actually change the culture of a place, right? So there has to be some regularity. And, and there's a ton of variables here, especially if we're talking long distance, like if somebody's two states away or three or four hours, six, seven, eight hours away or, or further, it may not be feasible to do all that traveling. In fact, many people's travel plans were canceled because of the pandemic. However, when we do go to these churches, we hold training sessions for church leadership. Again, I've said that it's, we, we often, the, the, lead, the pastors often blame their congregations for not wanting to change, but it's the pastors. So these leaders need to learn how to evangelize, how to do it themselves, because they're often the ones who are the biggest chickens, honestly, and they're often the ones who are the most resistant to change. So, so, so there must be training from the top down. I'm not just going to speak to the congregation writ large. Let's talk to the elders. Let's talk to the, the people in charge so that we can get everybody on board. Uh, number three, help organize and lead outreaches in the church. So when I would travel and go to other churches, a, a big part of it was an event. Now, the event is kind of a, a double-edged sword because I don't want Christians to think that evangelism only happens in an event. Like where you get a big speaker, you know, to come from out of state, you know, or, or you get, uh, man, I went to this place in New York. They, they had so much stuff, and it, it, it rivaled the county fair, you know. And it's like they did all of this just to reach their neighborhood and spend all this money. And then the VBS, don't get me started on the VBS, all the... All the exhausted volunteers, like they build out these stages and costumes and all this stuff. All this, probably tens of thousands of dollars. The the block party I mentioned had a had a comedian, 
had a, a, a Christian box, had all this stuff, had a dunk tank, all these things. Like, that's not evangelism, okay? However, sometimes you need to get a sense of this is, this is big and special just to get people's, you know, get, just to get people on board. And then once you're there, okay, here's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to talk to strangers about Jesus. That's what we're going to do, you know? Right? So, so, so anyway, doing something like that, you know, there may be some, some little goodies, some little giveaways, some little incentives there, but at bottom, we're creating an opportunity to get people in that church talking about Jesus. Uh, number four, consult with church leadership on how to create a culture of evangelism and a self-sustaining evangelism ministry. So what we want to see there is uh, uh, that, that culture, again, where people, great and small, have that burden to witness. And what you'll see is that God grows a church that way and God blesses a church that way, though it may not be that every time you go out on a Saturday, you're going to get 10 people on a Sunday. But what you will see is that you'll have saints who are encouraged and strengthened and built up and that they're constantly sharing their faith with others. And then a self-sustaining evangelistic ministry. We want to see evangelism on your calendar. You have your prayer meeting. You have your worship night. You have your Bible study. Where's your evangelism time? We got to get you there. What can we do to get you there to where at least it's like once, twice a month, if not weekly, if not more than once a week, that your people are going out? How can we get you there? How can we get you to normal? Okay. Number five, identify and raise up fivefold leaders in that church. Find, find the TJs and find folks in that church that may have that gifting young on fire Christians and build them up in their calling. Second, uh, and lastly, six, preach revivals, crusades, bring a friend days, all that stuff. All that good stuff. So that, that would be the stuff you do. And, and again, this is stuff that evangelists typically do, nothing wrong with it. But, you know, that's not the only thing. Amen. There's so much that goes into it. Well, that's my word to you. I don't have an altar call, but let's all stand and uh, we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, word of instruction. I pray it blesses us, Lord, even those who are not necessarily called to, uh, to be a fivefold evangelist. Uh, but, Lord, we are all called to be a part of your body. And we're all called to be a part of the local church. We're all called to lead. We're all called to win souls, to make disciples. Um, and, and, and so, Lord, I pray for everybody who heard this and, and that is present here, those watching online, uh, that we are built up and edified. And I pray, Lord, that more, more leaders in the body would catch the shift of what you're doing, that they would get with it, they would get bold, they would get on fire, that they would be fearless and that they would go out and reach the multitudes, the millions that are dying without Jesus, that are longing um, to, to hear the gospel that we have um, in, our, in, our, in our little Zoom meetings. Lord, help us. Have mercy on us, Lord. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that in this hour that, that many, many people would come to Christ, that it would be, Lord, in, in, in the midst of what appears to be a crisis, in the midst of what appears to be uh, a looming judgment, like everything could could easily, easily, for many reasons that we could predict, it would could all it could all go bad, and we could all see this country just 
go up in flames. But, but Lord, I pray that you would raise up the church in this hour. And I pray in Jesus' name that the gospel would be more potent and powerful and convicting and gripping the hearts of this hour. And more Christians would be sent out as Jesus prayed. And Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, the, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And so we pray to you, O Lord of the harvest, send workers into your harvest field. Send Christians with the heart and the passion and the burden and, and the knowledge of, of the truth of Jesus Christ to go out and reach their classmates and co-workers, their friends, their family and neighbors, oh God, to, to, to get churches that are just, just sold out and leaders that are sold out to reaching their communities for Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. Raise them up, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Right.